I'm Bertie Ahern, Taoiseach of Ireland from 1997 to 2008. And this is an extended interview from the story of the Good Friday Agreement as I remember it. The Northern Ireland Women's Coalition played a vital role throughout the talks. Monica McWilliams was the leader of the party. When I spoke to her for the podcast, she started by telling me about the reality of life in Northern Ireland when she was growing up. Monica McWilliams, thanks very much for participating in this series. It's in conjunction with News Talk. Um, and what I've been trying to do is to talk to those involved in the Good Friday Agreement, not just about the week or two, but the period up to it and um, the period after and looking to the future. And um, I have been watching you uh, for the last 25 years, continuing on the work um, some of us stopped what you've continued on in so many ways uh, to fulfil the, the vision of the Good Friday Agreement. I suppose, Monica, I want to talk about the Women's Coalition, obviously, and the brilliant idea and the huge contribution that it paid. But uh, if, if you don't mind, I'd like to, to, to start with, I know what you privately told me just about your own your own background and the troubles and when you were a student and what happened and you, if you don't mind you might just relay that that sad story yeah that was in my early days at queen's university and going from a small market town in the country up to the big city of belfast i was very excited and those years could be described as the best of years and the worst of years in 1974 in that april and may were really really bad times and we not only were keeping our heads down, but we were looking over our shoulders. We were watching ourselves because of the Ulster Workers' Council's strike. And I was a student about to do exams, and we had no electricity. And we had no food. We couldn't go anywhere in transport because there was no petrol. It was like a curfew. The country had closed down, and the streets were dangerous. And then I got word that my friend, Michael Mallon, had been murdered. And I knew him very well, and he came from the country as well. And um, we played sport together every Wednesday up at the playing pitches at Queen's, and that's where his body was found. He had been hitching a lift, as we all did in those days on Sunday night, and for him it was start of the week to come back for the exam. And he um, was taken to a UDA club and was later found with four bullets in his head. And it was tragic. And I recall asking who could have done such a terrible thing. I had to sit my exam because Queen's did not stop. And his name would have been alphabetically um, in front of me, seated, empty seat. And the invigilator comes down the hall and says, where's that fella? And I said he was murdered. And he said, get on with your exams. Um, so what should have been <coughs> ordinary days were extraordinary and back then I'd already been involved in the civil rights movement and figured that it would have all be over in the early 70s and this was the early 70s and it was another 30 years before it was all over and many many more deaths later um, there were many funerals of friends of mine our next door neighbours brother William Strahern Another notorious uh, killing the man was a chem or owned a shop and was asked late at night for aspirin, and the people who were asking him for the aspirin when he answered the door shot him dead. Um, other friends 
with the O'Dowds, um, wiped out practically their family, Mary O'Dowd's uncle, two brothers, and her own father survived with 13 bullets. That's what we were living through, and it became customary to turn on the news or read the paper and find out that you knew someone else. So it was definitely time to end it. That probably more than anything else gave you the uh, the vision that there there was something that you had to do rather than just watch it and see see it all happen. Um, I know you're involved in in, in many things, but uh, then as we move on into trying to make politics work, which wasn't easy in the North as throughout the 70s or 80s. Um, but then the the idea of the, the women's coalition and uh, the idea of, well, I suppose women's coalition kind of, I think, grew out of the political system that you needed a party, but you were very active in, in, in trying to see if there was a better way. Yeah, and I talk about being involved in civil rights, and by the 70s, the feminism had swept across the Atlantic and women's rights was starting. In fact, our first involvement was around campaigning for the Sex Discrimination Act to be brought to Northern Ireland when we were told religion was the only problem by a Labour government um, when it introduced the Fair Employment Act. And we said, no, there's a bigger problem here also in relation to what's happening to us. And on top of that, we had the conflict. In fact, Cathy Harkin from Derry described it as an armed patriarchy, a very conservative patriarchal society. So we were involved in trying to help women um, who were suffering from domestic violence, to open up refuges and shelters. So I would say we had a pre-existing network already in place. So when politicians said, where did these women come from? It was as if we'd fallen out of the sky. Well, in fact, we'd been together for 25 years before it, working in in local communities, grassroots communities. It was a bottom-up movement. And often it's civil society actors who eventually do the peace building but are not invited to the table. And so when the peace talks were declared, in fact it was Baroness uh, Mayhew, Lady Mayhew and Baroness Denton, two Conservative Party women. After the Downing Street Declaration, they said, we'd love to hear from women about their responses, because mostly male voices that you hear. And by then we had realised that it was really important to have a cross-section of women from Northern Ireland Uh, say something about how they saw their future. And I called a big conference outside Draperstown and they flooded to it in hundreds. And that was when we decided there is something here about forming a coalition of very diverse women who have different differences politically, but we could work across our differences and with our differences. And so we were ready when the peace talks were declared initially the British government um, said that there would be um, 10 parties at the table because they wanted the small armed group parties affiliated to the loyalist parties in particular at the table. And so the process was designed very creatively uh, that there would be 10 parties. And I remember sitting down with Avila Kilmurray saying, well, this was a conclusion of our previous event. And now we're being called on and maybe we should roll up our sleeves and do something. And the proposal was that we would write to the parties who never bothered to answer the letters. And we said, well, look, why don't we just do it and form it? And the official rang Brona Hines, who was involved in the European Women's Platform, and said, what's the name of your party? 
and we made it up as quick as that, Women's Coalition. And the reason why it was a coalition is because women from other parties said that they were interested in what we were doing, knowing full well that they might not get um, chosen as delegates in their own parties. And so they were also part of it, which was a very difficult um, group to um, bring together to make consensus over decisions. It took a lot longer to arrive at a decision, but when you did, you went a lot further with it. And that was the beauty of being in the coalition, and it challenged me, because in Northern Ireland you live in a very segregated, separated um, areas, and people didn't really know that many people from the opposite side. Women did, uh, because domestic violence doesn't distinguish between class or religion. And so we did know each other, but not to the extent that we really knew each other's politics. And that's the test of any peace talks, is to really speak to the other side. And when like, the talks started in 96, and um, then when Tony Blair and I came in in, in 97, I mean, the, the, the big issue really was how we were going to get the talks back up and run again, how we were going to get inclusive. And I suppose... Monica, you spent a good bit of time in, in, in the election and getting made for talks, but I think you were always one of the people that believed that inclusive process was the, the way we'd make make progress. Um, what did you think about when you know, we were moving to a stage where like, we'd got the ceasefire renewed again, you had the two governments, uh, you had all the parties, you had Sinn Féin coming in, um, you had the loyalist parties there, uh, did, did you expect the unionists to stay in or go out? I mean, I, I was only newly elected as Taoiseach, but it was that worry, would the DUP walk out, would Bob McCartney walk out, yeah. and what would happen, would Trimble stay in? Well, let's roll it back a little bit, because what I believe really helped that day was something that we, the Women's Coalition, did. When we first sat down and looked at this concept, sufficiency of consensus, we tried to dissect what that meant. We knew it had come from South Africa, which was really important in terms of how you made decisions between people who didn't agree. And we asked Michael Ancrum, who was the junior minister for the British government, who do you mean in terms of this consensus? And they said the two governments, of course, and the two largest parties, being the Ulster Unionists and the SDLP. And we said, that's it. When you have another group of parties around that table who will not even be consulted or asked for their opinions. So we asked them to change it. And we said sufficiency should mean a sufficient number of parties. Not a majority, not unanimous. Well, a majority in the sense that there would be a sufficient number, eight out of ten potentially, or six out of eight, always knowing and worrying that the DUP and the UKUP um, would not perhaps sign up with the rest of us. It worked. Because on that day that you're speaking about, when Sinn Féin walked in, one party, the Ulster Unionists, were undecided, and two parties had walked out, the DUP and the UKUP, never to come back. Well, the question was, would David Trimble lead his party in, knowing that a large section of unionism had just left? And we said sufficiency of consensus might kick in here, because he'll have the two loyalist parties on his side. And that's exactly what happened. There's a famous picture of him walking in with his senior Ulster Unionist members alongside David Irvine uh, from the Progressive Unionist Party, alongside Gary McMichael, leading his group in from the Ulster Democratic Party. That's what he needed. 
and no one was going to call those two men traitors or was going to call them a sellout. As David Irvine used to say, it takes a second to say sellout and it takes a lot longer to say it isn't. And that's what David Trimble was being accused of by sitting down with his enemy, Sinn Féin. And I, I remember thinking, will they come back? And it was a tense period. Um, and every day we said to Sandra Mitchell, mañana, tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow. And eventually they walked back into the room. And it took a few more days then for us to set up General de Chastelin to deal with that burning issue which was preventing the Unionists from thinking that we could sit at the table with Sinn Féin, which was decommissioning. So we sorted those out, and it was towards the end of that September I said to Pearl Sager, my colleague at the table, um, this is it. We'd been there for 15 months. It'd been a hard slog. It also made a difference that you got elected and came in and that Mo Mollum got elected, um, along with Tony Blair. It was like a breath of fresh air had suddenly swept into the room. There was a new dynamic. Um, all for me now was the ingredients were there. Two leaders from two different governments, the Irish and British, never before at the table, both from very different ideological points of view, but the chemistry could be clear to see. I figured this is going to work. And then all the parties to the problem had to become parties to the solution, and they were now seated at the same table. So we stood up and we shook hands, the parties that were around us, and everyone started clapping. So it was that was the kind of moment when I felt we'd turned another page. And that run um, to Christmas of that 97, like, for, for me it was early into the talk because you'd been at it for 18 months or so at that stage. But um, it, it, it was a difficult few months because we seemed to be talking, 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 going around and mm. through no fault of, of, of your party, we weren't making much progress. We weren't, and to the extent that the prisoners on the loyalist side in the uh, UDA said to their leaders of their party, to Gary McMichael and to another good man at the time, David Evans, you guys have to leave the table. We don't believe these talks are going to work. They're just going around in circles. And we made a decision to go into the prison at their invitation <laughs> to speak um, to Michael Stone, um, uh, Adair, Johnny Adair, and Bobby Philpott, three pretty hard men. And um, the prison officers put Alsatian dogs on the ankles of Pearl, May Blood and myself, as we walked through the gate. And I think it probably was a way of intimidating us. They certainly succeeded. What was more intimidating was the hard porn on the walls above the secretaries in the prison officers' area, which I was shocked at. I wondered, could I be much more shocked? And the prison officer said, I'm going to lock you up with these three men now in this mobile hut and I'll come back in three hours. And that's what happened. And we convinced them, we hoped, that their negotiators were playing a good role. Now, why would I have stuck my neck out to the extent that inclusion was really being taken to its limits? Because these were not good characters. They were imprisoned for some terrible offences. Michael Stone was famous for what he'd done in Milltown Cemetery that day. And I remember thinking, well, we do need the voice of working class loyalism at this table if we are going to have a peace deal. If we've brought them in from the cold, they need to be kept 
in the cold. It wasn't a patronising way of doing it, because going into prison wasn't easy. And Mo Molan went in three months later, to her credit, and they made a lot of fun of her, you know, passing a cup of tea over to Johnny Adair, saying, two sugars, Mr Adair, as if that was, you know, funny. We were in serious business here. We were in the business of keeping people at the table. Um, and that then turned around after Christmas and we were in the countdown because we already figured this has gone on for two years and it won't go on for much longer. Sandra Mitchell had left his wife and newborn child um, and people were far from home. The Canadians, those from Finland and the United States Secretariat. Um, and people were beginning to get weary. Yeah. And a lot of murders were starting because when you look like you might be starting to come to an end, people started shooting outside the room and it was a very frightening time. Mm -hmm. And I looked around the table one day and I thought, I wonder, will anybody at this table be killed? Because that can also happen if you look like you're coming towards an agreement. Mm -hmm. Well, I remember... When we got, we went through that period of Billy Wright. We shot the prison at Christmas, and then, the, as you said, there were people killed. It, it, we had to put Sinn Fein out on a red card, and we had to put Gary McMichael out on a red card. And then we came to 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 that Pat, Patrick's Day. I did the usual annual gig. It was my first one off to to, to meet Bill Clinton, uh, and you know we said, listen. Uh, I wasn't so sure about the deadline. I, I thought the deadline was a bit a bit tight, but said, "Listen, I hope you're there to to help us." And he'd been talking to Tony Blair already at that stage, and so we came back on St Patrick's Day, and we literally had three weeks, and I was the heads of agreement document had been done, and so so I think we all knew what we were trying to to achieve, but. As we started that three-week period, Monica, you know, with all the, the strand one, strand two, strand three, you know, prisoners, police and decommissioning, your area of world expertise on the whole human rights, party of esteem ag agenda, you know, what, what did you and your, your party think um, was this achievable? Because I was certainly worried. Well, you mentioned being taken away out of the country, and that was important that week in St. Patrick's Day because we got a chance to talk to people in a social way which we couldn't in Northern Ireland and out of sight of cameras and out of the public sight and we find the humanity in each other sometimes out of the country and the previous summer we had all been taken to South Africa yeah. and I do want to mention the enormous role that South Africa played and President Mandela spent three days with us as did the clerk's people and <coughs> put a lazy's people. Indeed, the decommissioning issue came up there because the general of the South African Army was present, as was the general of MK, which was ANC's militant wing. And that brought everyone up short that these two enemies were now talking to us together, laughing, um, having a social occasion where we could engage with them. Again, I learned that... Um, and that was the first time that the Loyalists spoke to the Republicans because I gave them the key to my bungalow and they sat down that. That is a lesson in peace building in terms of getting to an agreement. So it's good to have those champions. You don't get much better than President Mandela nor at that time President Clinton. Um, and fair play that you were having those discussions because it came home to roost 
when we started and came back from St. Patrick's Day was when the decision was made that we needed to have this deadline. And that really fixed people's minds. And there were a lot of subcommittees. If you remember, the plenaries could be where people talked each other out and there was a lot of venting, a lot of anger, a lot of hurt, a lot of accusations about who did what to who. Today it's called whataboutery. And it wasn't really an effective place to do a lot of work because you had to press a button with a microphone in front of you. It was different in the corridors and it was different in the small rooms. So we broke ourselves into all these different teams. One was dealing with policing, another on social and economic opportunity, um, another on um, the, the issues of human rights and equality. And my concern for a party as small as ours was how we were going to split ourselves into so much work. But they were good working sessions, confidence building mechanisms. Mm. Every time I see that acronym, CBM, I think back to those days where everybody was talking about you know, what would help here with a confidence building mechanism. So in a process where nothing is agreed until everything is agreed, that was really productive because you banked what you were getting as confidence building and you put that in your bank and then you look to see, well, where are the gaps that haven't been agreed and where are the really big gaps, which was the constitutional issues, which we knew as a small party we would be leaving to people like yourself and, and, and Prime Minister Blair uh, and the officials. So we focused down on those other issues um, and also on victims, which we figured may not get mentioned as long as people talk about policing and talk about prisoner releases and talk about future governance. What falls off the table are issues to deal with those who had suffered the most. Because who generally is at the table? It's either armed groups or constitutional parties. And they may not be as concerned as a party like ours was, who had many victims and relatives of victims inside the party. And so I'm pleased that we gave some thought to that. We also, also thought very late in the day, actually, about integrated education, the need to break down the segregation what would happen to the next generation of young people who had built the peace outside of the room in the communities, resources for community development. Um, and so that we began to develop a list of things that might not generally make itself into a peace agreement but were important to sustainable peace. Um, and, and we were working night and day. Every night we went home and we did Senator Mitchell's homework. He would ask us questions. He would ask us, what do you think? But what little unknown to us, nobody was doing their homework because they were keeping their powder dry, pardon the expression, until the very last day. So we were preparing our papers at the kitchen table, mostly in my house because we had kids or in whoever's house who needed childcare. And we'd bring him the sheets and deliver them to him. And I'd say, now, can I see the others? Can, can we see everybody else's? He'd say, I hate to tell you, but you're the only ones handing this in. So... What I learned from that was prepare, 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 because you don't know when that moment's going to come. But at least you can say, um, we did the work. You couldn't be accused of only whining and bringing problems. You needed to also think through what would be the solutions. Well, I think probably our listeners wouldn't realise that within the talks and within all the subcommittees and the plenaries and the side talks and the side shows, um, 
what, what you and your colleagues were, were, were doing and the reason you had the list and you, you knew what people were doing was because you had this uh, phenomenal ability of moving around all the tables, uh, talking to everybody and I suppose if you could set the scene in those rooms, um, everybody was sitting in their, in their own shed and uh, nobody was moving around. Um, and I think you, 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 you and your colleagues, and small in number, but you made sure you, you moved and, and, and you tic-tacked with, with everyone. I think that was a, a, a phenomenal bit because the reason you knew, knew the list was because you were listening to everybody. And yeah. I think it's just good that we relay that because it, yeah. not alone were you there as the Women's Coalition, but as one party, but yeah. you were doing this. Yeah, I, I think of it as process, and you mm. used the word inclusive, and I could see that that was as inclusive as we could be. Product is what you work on in terms of subst- substance and, and outcome. But people forget about chemistry, relationships. Um, human beings are engaging here, and they need to know what makes the other person tick, what's of interest, where they come from. You know, what happened to them? to give them the beliefs that they've got. And nobody had trained us for any of this. And I remember, um, it was Jane Morris had met a woman um, in America called Carmen Sura Brady. She was in the trade department. And Jane said, trade negotiations sound like something we should know about. And we brought her over and she trained us. And one of the things she said to us, I'll never forget it. She said, find out what all the other parties want or need actually need mm-hmm. everybody has their wants she said focus on their interests and I she said the only way you'll do that is by talking to them and it struck me early on that there were some parties the unionist parties in the room who felt it was a strength never to speak to some of the other parties particularly Sinn Féin and so I figured if they are never going to speak to them how are they going to know where they're coming from um, and that is the role we played. We started facilitating the media and, uh, and, and many of these people at the table would have been known to us. The loyalist parties, particularly David Irvine's, we had been inviting to our own house with their wives to sit down and have dinner with us so we could find out where they were coming from. That's what you have to do. But it so rarely happens when you're in a very tense and some would describe it as a very elitist form of negotiations. But Bertie, you and even Sandra Mitchell would have said to us, well, what are you finding out? That's a good question, because we were working outside the room as well. Many of our members were from grassroots, bottom-up community, as I said, and they had a lot of information. They knew what was happening at the interface. They knew the rumours, they knew the lies, and that can destroy a process. And Sandra Mitchell and his staff and yourself and the officials really welcomed that because we were feeding information and we were the outsiders who'd become insiders. But we realised there was a benefit to also being in the outside because being that kind of marginalised group, you weren't really viewed as the big beasts or the big players, but you had information maybe that nobody else was giving. And it, some of those little nuggets proved to be very important. No, they were massively important. I, um, we were through the delegations, we were meeting the delegations one by one, and um, because the talks, uh, people always are shocked to hear that we, we didn't have everyone around the table at the one time. That isn't the way we, we conducted the negotiations, it was all one-to-one. But Tony Blair used to uh, always uh, 
say when he saw the Women's Coalition come down, that thanks be to God, now at least we'll have a conversation rather than be lectured to. But And it wasn't that you were soft touches because you came in to give out to us as well, but at least we were getting a an honest assessment of what was going on. Yeah, and, you know, to be fair to both of you, we could see that you were given it every ounce of your energy um, and you were listeners. Um, and that's important. I always joke my mother saying, you have one mouth and two ears. Use them in that proportion. And as you know, everybody was doing a lot of talking, but there was very little listening. Um, and so when the opportunities came to meet with you, um, we knew we were bit players, small players, but we figured in advance, we prepared for those meetings and we felt, well, what, as Americans would say, what's your ask? What do you want to come out of this? But often we weren't bringing you things that we were asking for. We were letting you know the dynamics of what was going on um, between the parties and trying to predict what we might be coming up against in terms of hurdles. Because, as you know, there was an awful lot of rumours flying around about who was responsible for what. Um, and unfortunately, most of those negotiations at this stage were starting to occur outside the room in the press because either predominantly unionists going to the, what they would have seen as sympathetic journalists on their side and likewise, Nationalist Republicans on the other side. Well, that was just putting the goalposts up higher and higher. Yeah. And it was those meetings with you that we were saying, well, look, we need to get the temperature down here um, and we need to figure out how we can do this in a way that's productive. Your officials, I have to pay tribute to them. They were outstanding. David Cooney had a relationship with the Loyalists. Now, he laughs now about whether it was because he had an English accent I think it was because of the skills he had. And they came to trust him. And they said to me, we actually like that man more than some of the British officials who were dealing with. Now, that was about the best tribute you could pay to an Irish official working for the Irish government who would have been seen as being on the opposite side of the ideology of where the loyalists were coming from. But I could see that dynamic, that relationship helping greatly with, with the negotiations. There's one area you you probably won't be surprised because I know you've spent um, years working on policing matters and criminal justice matters and bringing things forward over over all all the years with the paramilitary groups and every other group. But in in this serious, um, the the only area where I think there's total agreement uh, is, is that everybody from all sides have said that the huge success is policing that not alone did we get policing right. Now, we didn't negotiate that. We, mm. we gave it to, to, to Chris Patton. But that, you know, they're, 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 and now it's considered to be an international success story. Um, I know you've played mm. your, your role in that, but it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting 25 years on that it's almost everybody feels that that has been a, a useful contribution to the whole agreement. It was the, one of the most difficult issues because I remember Ken McGuinness saying... Um, it's the people who are upholding the law who are being killed by the people who are breaking the law, which was his side of how and what uh, he was not. He was the police spokesperson for the Ulster Unionists and did not see the need to have a massive reform of the RUC. Seamus Mallon in those little subcommittee on policing, um, when I say little, it was actually one of the most important ones, um, would put forward the opposite argument. 
and would regale the treatment that he would have had and indeed others. But for me, um, again, it was a loyalist working class guy, Billy Mitchell, who said big house unionism's day is over. What we also need when we talk about representation is not just about Catholics, but working class people, people from my community, he said. And Barbara McCabe on our side, the Women's Coalition, who was also from a Protestant background, initially came in and made that argument too, that if we're going to have a representative, accountable, transparent police service in the future, rather than police force, which is how we were referring to it in the past, then these are the ingredients that are needed. But I think we'd still be at that table if we hadn't have put it out to a commission, which is another lesson that you may not resolve everything. Um, and that paragraph is very important in the Good Friday Agreement about how we came to the recommendation that there should be an independent commission. I remember spending that hours of the Holy Thursday night adding in the words international because I remember having sat through the Widgery Tribunal in Coleraine as a young schoolgirl after Bloody Sunday and watching the whitewash that it was and it was neither independent nor did it have any international mm. expertise and thinking the word international in a contested, conflicted society like ours is so important because either the British or the Irish could decide this person is independent mm. and you could end up fighting over that Whereas if you have international people and people who can bring a third eye to where your problems are, that's really important. And it was still in parenthesis. I mean, I now when I talk and train people on negotiations, I'm always saying, watch what's still inside the brackets. It maybe could go this way or that way or drop off completely. And so I'm very proud of the fact that when that commission was established, it was independent and international. And today, there, I come across a rare person who would say that those reforms weren't needed, that it was one of the success stories. And in those early days, we moved so fast mm -hmm. in terms of a change of name, a change of uniform, um, code of ethics, um, community policing, um, all of the things that our community would not have been uh, familiar with in the mm -hmm. past. And I speak as someone from the Catholic nationalist stroke Republican community that that's how I would have been seen and so my me my days go back to the memory of what it was like to have be specials and very repressive apparatus used against us um, as a young person just traveling on the roads um, how my mother would have been intensely offended by um, a policeman reaching in and taking the statue of the Virgin Mary off the front of the car and throwing it on the ground um, you know, that's not what a police service if it wants to win the hearts and minds of people do. So that commission was incredibly important. And yes, it is recognised as a good model. Yeah. I suppose the other commission we set up mightn't have been as, as quick and uh, maybe it got to the end result of the International Commission for decommissioning. And um, we spent a, a lot of our life with John de Chastelain trying to get that right. But when I look back in hindsight, maybe 2005, considering it was seven years to get from the start to the finish of it. Maybe it wasn't that long, but I do think it would have been a, a help to David Trimble and maybe to the SELP if we had been able to resolve that far quicker. That absolutely is the case, and it just shows you that armed groups take a long time 
to come around to seeing that this is a process that's going to work and there is no alternative to take the gun out of politics. As I've now seen in other countries, and Colombia is another example, demobilization and disarmament and the reintegration uh, of prisoners. It's the UN's model in terms of what happens after a peace process. We did demobilize. The army were brought back to barracks. Um, the IRA agreed to stand down. Um, but the judgment was, would that be by handing in weapons? Some saw that as surrender. Um, and some said, demanded, as you know, if prisoners are being let out, then the guns must come with it. So those are hard issues. In every country that I've been in, those are hard issues. Um, but the fact we had a, had a ceasefire was the most important and that only politics now would be the foundation of the resolution of our difficulties. So you could look back and say maybe it took too long um, because it became a bargain of guns and government, which was a terrible debate because I remember meeting you and Prime Minister and you were saying, oh, well, you guys have no guns. And our, the usual answer was, well, should we go out and get some so that we become seen as more serious players? And I do think the government's made a mistake in excluding it down to that issue, but also who also held guns on the other side. The loyalists, they weren't at that table. And David Irvine would say to me, they expect us also to be involved in decommissioning, but no one's talking to me. So it put the anger up and they felt they were, had been left back out in the cold. So the lesson I learned from that is when you make an agreement and you have the spirit of the people behind you, which we had when we brought the referendum to the people in that May, and they said an overwhelming yes of 71%, we had a mandate then to move forward, build on that spirit and move quickly. But what happened instead was a clash of interpretations. Ulster Union is focused entirely on a menu of guns, and Sinn Féin focused entirely on we must be in government. And neither of those sides were going to meet. Um, and it just, for me, it was a very sad time because I could see the expectations of people being drained down to those two issues when there was so much more that needed to happen in terms of peace dividend. Yeah, well, I think that was the, that, that was the, the, probably the pity of the week. I mean, the, the, the week was... Uh, um, so many issues, we either resolve them or we set up a process to ultimately re resolve them. Um, and so many, there was such a good lift into the campaign of, of May 98. Um, but then we seem to spend the next umpteen years talking about very few of the issues that we had we had agreed. Yeah. And we lost, we lost several years. I would put my hands up and also say um, I probably made a mistake. Um, I remember quoting Let Them Rust in Peace, which was a sign written on the Presbyterian Church as you drove into Parliament buildings. And I thought that's a perfect, perfect message. Whatever minister has written Let Them Rust in Peace. And then I began to think John Hume was also right. It's the decommissioning of mindsets. Mm. And I use that in my work on domestic violence. You can take the poker or the baseball bat or, or a weapon out of... Uh, any perpetrator's hands but if he is a serial perpetrator an offender or as Colombians now talk about responsible ones then it's the change of attitude 
And that didn't change, Bertie, because people didn't trust each other. You know, they, they, there'd been so much harm and so much hurt that even the very word of reconciliation um, was boring to people um, because they couldn't see it. So that's where I feel I maybe made a mistake in that deeds are important. Actions are important where people don't trust each other. Yeah. I think, Marco, just that week, one question on the week. I suppose George Mitchell, because the two of us were there, um, George Mitchell was kind of left sitting around talking to seeing what was going on and I know that was beginning to frustrate him because he, he was on to me several times. But I, I, the tension of the week um, was horrendous uh, and I think you were in a, in a, probably in a good position to see that more than most because you were talking to everybody. Um, but it, it struck me as, as we, like there was the row about strand one which and it couldn't be resolved and we had strand two and... Um, Strand three wasn't really a problem because Tony and I were on the on the one sheet. Then we had the prisoners issue: was it going to be a year? Was it going to be two? Um, you know what was going to happen with decommission, and then we had the internal problems within the uh, the unionist party. But um, I, I suppose you know you're in a good position because you're moving around just to relay some of the the tensions and the real fear um, mm. uh, that was in that room because yeah. it wasn't not, I, I spent a lot of my life in trade union negotiations other, but this was a very different yeah. atmosphere uh, yeah but and you played a blinder as did Tony Blair that week and you in particular because I remember you getting the word that your mother had passed away and we saw the toll that that would take us on that news but also attending the wake to Dublin, come back for a, a funeral and having that big issue of the North-South bodies on your shoulders well, after John Taylor had made his famous soundbite, I won't touch this agreement with a 40-foot barge pole and everyone thought, this is a disaster I remember going out and saying to the press, no one's going back to war over this document, because we had read the draft that Monday and I thought we could still resolve it that was a complicated issue. I, I look today and think how many people are talking about north-south bodies. But that night, it was huge. Um, and it was, you'd given up Articles 2 and 3 of the Irish Constitution. And in turn, there had to be a quid pro quo. Um, then, no one wanted the blame for pulling the thing down. Sinn Féin, at the start of that week, were not signing up to a partitionist assembly, as they saw it. Um, and that was a big issue, but the quid pro quo was around prisoner releases, potentially being members of a coalition government, all of these big, massive ideological changes. Um, so, yes, we were going between the parties, and I can remember that discussion about prisoner releases from five years to one year to two years. Mo Molan played a blinder. Yeah. She met me in the corridor, bare feet, no wig, because she found it uncomfortable. I haven't gone through chemotherapy myself later. I understood exactly what it would be like and how she threw off her wig. And she had an intravenous drip in her arm. Um, it was quite something to see somebody negotiate the way she was doing that night. And it was Sinn Féin that she had to do most of the work with. Um, and she said to me, they're working me over. She was exhausted. And I was able to say to her from our, my meetings, they're on board. 
at that stage they had come round. I know the SDLP were annoyed at them because they wanted to discuss the future workings of the Northern Ireland Assembly. <laughs> and I remember there was a bit of antagonism about go and chase yourselves. You haven't come near us and now you're coming in these last hours to talk about Northern Ireland Assembly. But there was humour too because the, the, the building was starting to fill up and the Loyalists were bringing in lots of their comrades uh, who were ex-combatants, hopefully ex-combatants. Republicans were doing likewise. People were carrying in beds, little beds to, to sleep on. I wish we had had some. Um, and um, we sent out for food because everyone, we were told Holy Thursday was the last night of the canteen. And this poor fellow arrived and it had been snowing with a balaclava to prevent the snow from on, on a bicycle on his head. Uh, the balaclava on his head came in freezing and security let him up and Bridge Rogers let a roar out of her saying and they haven't even got the manners to take their uniforms off <laughs> and he whipped the balaclava off him and said ah missus I'm only bringing pizzas to the women which was us <laughs> um, and that's when I realised wow look these guys are bringing in everybody the, the building's filling up something's happening the tension was huge and w- people were running up and down to you. You were on the third floor. So was the British government. Senator Mitchell was on a different floor, maybe the same floor. Um, we were on the second floor. Unionist loyalists and lions on the bottom floor. You were flying between up and down, up and down, along the corridors, in and out of rooms, um, because there was no hard draft of the amendments. The keeper of the pen, as I say, or the keeper of the computer disk, which were the officials and you in the governments, knew exactly what was happening. Nothing's agreed till everything's agreed. We had to do that piece of work of running and running and not stopping in order to get the information about what was still on the table, what had fallen off the table, what was no longer in brackets, what had now been decided on the hard issues. And then, of course, as you know, just as we thought we'd got it all together, boom, the Ulster Unions had a meeting from hell and we thought it was all over on the Good Friday morning. Yeah. Well, that was... Um, that, that's where the side letters came in <laughs> from both me to, and the North South Bodies and, to, and from Tony uh, on the decommission issue. But, you know, ultimately, I suppose, we got across the, the, the line. Just to, to move on, Monica, to um, the campaign... Uh, and to get it passed, and I, I know that she's played a very active role in that. But David Trimble, I think, played a good role in, in many things, but he, he didn't take an active role in that campaign, which I could never quite understand. Yeah. Um, and and there was that whole worry, having gone through all the negotiation, would we get it? Would we get this passed by the people, and particularly in the north? Well, the worry was, would we get it past the unionist yeah. people? Mm-hmm. The nationalist Republican vote was there. Yeah. Um, and, you know, they knew how to sell it. They sold the gains. And unfortunately, the unionists were selling the pains. Um, and it was parties like ours and others who said the Anglo-Irish agreement is gone. It has been replaced by an agreement in which you, the unionists, have been involved and directly negotiated and your stamp is on this agreement. <laughs> and... Um, I, I suppose it never did Ulster Unionists any favours that it was the Women's Coalition that were out promoting uh, the things that they had managed to achieve. Um, but it was a tough, tough, tough six weeks and very worrying 
because the anti-agreement side had already prepared and it was as easy to say no. And everywhere we seemed to be going, there was posters and banners and regalia saying no. It's easy to say no, as you know, if you've got children and and you're in a relationship, it's much harder to explain why. And that's what we were doing. We borrowed a double, well, we paid for a double-decker bus, took our kids on it and went round every village and town with loudspeakers. And, and actually, we came up against... I remember getting a stick put in my face, like as if it was a gun, and the young fella shouting bang, saying you should be dead. And some people were very upset about prisoner releases or that we hadn't done enough for victims. And all I can say is, thank God, there was a paragraph on victims in the Good Friday Agreement, because otherwise people are saying, this is a terrorist charter. What have you done for me? Um, So those were tough six weeks. And when I looked around, I couldn't see the bigger parties. Whether they were back in their offices preparing for governance, which was maybe a good thing, because they must have assumed we were going to get through the referendum, or... Dangerous assumption. Yeah. Or David Trimble had too many of his own party in his face rather than at his back. And he did. By then, I think the majority of the Westminster MPs were against him. And people probably forget that that's the moment when a leader is under huge stress. And it didn't help that there was these then, these big Ulster Hall rallies where loyalist prisoners spoke. And then they had the Balcom Street guys and the Republican rally here in Dublin. Well, that doesn't help a middle-class, as they call it, garden estate um, voter and who would be watching that and saying, I'm supposed to say yes. But we swung it. And what happened was, in my book, was again civil society stood up. Mm. The doctors came out of their hospitals and said, never again do I want to be stitching people up. Um, the teacher said, I want my kids to be able to come to school safely or not stand at the funerals of mm. families being buried. Um, and they, and loads and loads of people whose voices you probably couldn't have heard during the peace negotiations now had their moment. And to me, that, that swung it. Um, and things then swung back. It was a roller coaster. Mm. One day you thought, we're getting there. The next day it went, oh, whack uh, whack a bowl every day there was another new issue and so you can imagine how we cheered when the chief electoral officer declared 71% in favour of the agreement but of course as we probably know now the hard work started then yeah and I suppose th- th- that's the, the thing to reflect on Monica, we, the the sad thing about the institutions is they've been off more often than on in, in so many things, and now even in more recent years, it's not even things to do with the agreement. It's not issues to do with the civil rights or human rights or equality rights. It's you know with cash for ash and you know almost any issue. Um, but look, look, looking before we 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 touch on on, on that, there are two, two two questions I just like. Yeah, after the agreement was passed and we had the tragedy of Oma, um, uh, just how how did you and your colleagues feel after all the work, all the effort, um, of, of now now here we hit a wall, and I suppose that was the the first thing, and then the the second thing is that did did we somewhere along make the mistake of allowing people opt out too easy out of the institutions that has kind of created the problem. 
with 2006 in St Andrews we, you know what we were trying to do we were trying to haul in the, the DUP but it, it seems in, in all of that we, we, we lost and we look back in 25 years there's been so many good things but I've been trying to see where, 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 where the mistakes were as well Well that's important that we look at our mistakes mm. because we tend to, I get a bit sick of people going around the world telling everybody about our successes it's important that people learn from our mistakes as well as from our successes. Um, but, you know, Bertie, there are people alive today who wouldn't have been had we not made that agreement. Um, my own children have a life now and others tell me that they have aspirations that were not there in my generation or for others. Um, so, you know, when people say to me, what difference does it make? It made a huge difference. Peace agreements do. And then you look at the piece that are, have been the gaps. We, the biggest mistake we made was not having an implementation committee. And, and I'm now involved with Columbia and look at their monitoring mechanisms. And they monitor every single part of what they agreed. So did we just make promises? Was it just a set of aspirations? As my son said to me the night I come home from Good Friday, um, will there be no more rows over parades? Will there be no more riots? And I, I said, not necessarily. He said, well, what did you sign today? And for me, that was a big lesson, was you have to deliver what you promise. And enforcement and implementation is everything. I know that as somebody who spent my life working on policy and legislation in terms of women's rights, that you should, just don't promise somebody something. It's back again to deeds, not words. And... That was the problem. We should have had that implementation committee. We should have monitored it and been very careful about the unintended consequences of what you review. And um, and that's difficult. And we're still in that position. But I'm still, the class more than half full. There are pieces that still need to be taken forward. I've just last night sat down um, to look at the 25th anniversary and think well what have we not done and there's quite a list <laughs> um, and I'm still as you know working as a commissioner on the measure to end paramilitarism like after 25 years why would there be such an issue well it is because of a clash of interpretations it's um, also that constitutional changes can happen Brexit for me is the largest constitutional piece of self-harm I've ever watched well would I have known that when I was involved in the peace negotiations and in some ways I look back and see that we actually did promote the European Union because it was one of the ways to resolve the issue yeah. of Ireland and its relationship with Britain and Europe. Mm-hmm. Did we forget that very quickly or did people always think our day will come when we can get that back? Did the British government, Boris Johnson, think about that in terms of um, calling a referendum when people did not know as, but we did, actually. That was the lesson of the Good Friday Agreement. We actually went out and worked to ensure that people understood what had been in our peace agreement. That was not the case when it came to issues like Brexit. But also, they, I now believe that parties are arguing for the reform of the Northern Ireland Assembly. And 25 years later, they're probably it's a dynamic instrument that we made, which was called the Good Friday Agreement. And how people voted, including myself, my own votes in the coalition weren't counted. Well, there is now almost a fifth of people who are in coming from both nationalist and unionist and other communities. Their votes should count. So it's things like that in a democratic society that quite rightly you would want to review. 
But you do it carefully because there can be unintended consequences. You've pointed out some of them. Um, and the most important part of what you've just said is dialogue. Do not throw your toys out of the pram and go into a huff and pick up the phone when you're in a crisis and say, look, we're in trouble here. We need to talk. Some of the, the, the issues, Monica, that have probably bedeviled the, the, the process in, in, in the last few years. And um, but What's your views? We still have the peace walls. You know, we still have the segregated education. Um, you know, and we, 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 we still have some tough issues that we, you know, that are, are probably still on the agenda. And because the assembly wasn't always up and running, maybe they never got to them. Um, but what, where do you see the future on some of those issues? Are, are they, are they ones that we have to tackle short term, or do we, do we just try and get the institutions back up and and and, and move it on? I mean, Brexit, Brexit. I totally agree with you. Brexit has been the, the one thing none of us ever saw coming. But not much we can do about it now. We 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 have to, to just make live with it and and, and try and avoid it. It being any worse than it than it is. Yeah. Um. But I do think we still need to address the shortcomings as a human rights person. I'd be very worried about anybody suggesting that we come out of the European Convention. And even though they say that's not on the cards, they are reverting mm. on whatever human rights we have. And remember, we had no Bill of Rights, no, which was in the peace agreement. Yeah, when so we didn't one of the things, Monica, I'd like you to actually give us the argument, because nobody has done this in my... is, is why a Bill of Rights is actually so important still because yeah. no, no, nobody has actually dealt with that well one didn't the conflict come about because people from a minority's rights weren't addressed and therefore in any country a bill of rights is a protection of minority rights governments don't particularly like bills of rights because they hold the government accountable to ensure either judicially or um, by spirit that the people's rights are upheld in those days I think that my problem as Chief Commissioner for Human Rights, when I drafted the advice on the Bill of Rights and handed it to the Secretary of State in the year of 2010, that unionists unfortunately still saw it as a legacy of civil rights, uh, an uprising of the minority against the state, um, when perhaps they felt the state had been justifiable in doing what it did or whatever laws were there. They may have changed their mind on that, but I think, unfortunately, it is demographics that may have changed the mind um, in that there is no such thing as a minority anymore. And um, all the more reason why you now understand that human rights are for all. And I lived with trying to convince the political parties to reach consensus. Unfortunately, the British government insisted that there had to be consensus. Now, I say to you... As the Taoiseach, and I would have said to Tony Blair, and you might have understood this argument, we'd never, ever have got consensus on patent. It was legislated on at Westminster. So why expect me as the Chief Commissioner to get political consensus? It is over to the Westminster to legislate. And you agreed all that at Hillsborough following the Good Friday Agreement. And still it sits gathering dust in number 10. And we're about to celebrate the 25th anniversary and we don't have an, even the, the basic um, advice uh, because the parties still have not been able to come together. Westminster lost interest. Um, Brexit has happened. 
and whatever rights we might have under the Human Rights Act are now being considered as disappearing or being reverting back. That's not a good scenario. So I throw all that in, and perhaps, but I'm one of those people who say that for that reason, we might have the Bill of Rights. For the negative reasons rather than the positive reasons. So on that, I think we might see something. Um, and it is an outstanding, huge gap in the Good Friday Agreement, particularly since it talks about no reoccurrence of a conflict. Um, and often that happens because people feel their rights have been infringed. The right even to be British or Irish or both is not enforced in law. That I can hold two passports, I can call myself British or Irish or those who don't like either being in that binary. Yeah, that's great. That's your identity, but is, is it actually a judiciable right? So even if there had only been that right, which I wouldn't have agreed, is the only right. But imagine not even having that 25 years on. Segregated education is an indictment, a stain on Northern Ireland. Um, and it couldn't, shouldn't be rocket science to have addressed it. It taught me a lesson. You can release prisoners, you can decommission weapons, you can demobilise armed groups, you can form a coalition government of ideologically opponents, but you can't integrate children under one roof to go to school. So they still grow up in the way I did, as strangers in a village or a town or a city. They can travel together in the same bus. In fact, the two schools could be right next to each other and you go in two opposite doors. You can walk down the street together, but then you part. Does that make sense in terms of having um, a stable society, educate the children together, learn, they will learn together, and obviously they will come to one day work and live amongst each other? Now, 25 years on, we should consider that a serious issue still to be addressed, and of course alongside that is shared housing um, and communities working together, as we now know with, through the International Fund for Ireland, on the peace walls. The peace walls will go, but they'll go whenever the communities on either side feel safe. And safety comes with stability. And so as long as politicians speak in a way that doesn't create that stability, then you can't blame them for wanting those walls still to be there. It's amazing, actually, that the tourists and visitors <coughs> to Northern Ireland, it's the one and only thing they leave the country talking about peace is peace walls. And that tells me, well, we need to do something also because for investment and prosperity, not only do we need the paramilitaries out of those areas, the coercive controllers, we need the peace walls down because some of them describe themselves as enforcers of the peace walls. And that can't be good for business. And so everything that I found in 25 years is that these are interdependent. Brexit, the legacy issues dealing with the past, the integrated education, taking down the peace walls, the Bill of Rights, one feeds into the other. Um, so in 25 years' time, I might be pushing up the daisies. In fact, I will be pushing up the daisies probably. But at least for my grandchildren or whoever, I can say, well, piece by piece, we finally got there. Well, last question, Monica, <coughs> probably the one that's challenged us of Brexit has brought it into more fruition and you know, where, where we, we get to the to the New Ireland, the, the concept of a New Ireland, the concept of, um, I, I don't like the United Ireland term because it's, you know, it's, things have moved on so much. And But 
how how do how do you see it play out? Uh, should we leave well enough alone? I mean, we have it in the agreement you can have a vote every now and again. Should we try and implement everything else and try and finish the job that we've there? Um, or is, is is it just, just too divisive to be going near in the, in the short term? No, it's in the agreement. And we would not have had an agreement had it not been in the agreement. So let's not forget that. Um, and also... The agreement talks about the totality of relationships. Well, let's not forget that either, and let's see how we can create that totality um, in terms of um, a new Ireland. I mean, the Irish government were talking about that and created forums long before we had peace talks. So I would say to people who are frightened of those forums being established now, they have a long history. It's not 25 years, it's almost 50 years. Um, And they... You've had a good example in the Republic of Ireland of your citizens' assemblies. We did promote a civic forum in Northern Ireland, which could be regarded as a citizens' assembly of sorts. I don't care what you call it. But if they, you set up those kind of forums, it's back to my mantra, prepare, prepare, prepare. And out of that, you could create a consensus about what people see as being the future in terms of the constitutional arrangement for this island. Thanks for all your cooperation and work over the last 25 years. Thank you.